Tuesday, May 6th, 2014, from Slate, this is The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. In today's show, what's Vladimir up to? And I'm going to say this has the potential to be a recurring segment. And then we'll talk to the author of a book called Taming Lust, Crimes Against Nature in the Early Republic. What exact types of crimes? I won't tell you now. I will just tell you. They aren't the fun types. And then, as always, we'll end with the spiel. Now, I was listening to NPR today, and they were doing a report on the closing of uh, the National Hispanic University. And here was a woman who attended that school talking about the persuasive powers of the man who ran the school. Dr. Cruz comes in and starts giving you the spill of what Anichi can do. Do you hear what she said? The spiel. It sounded more like the spiel than the spiel. The spill of what Anichi can do. So I'm on a mission not only to spiel, but to teach everyone how to say the spiel. And it is spiel. There is no C-H or H in the word, but that's how you're supposed to say it. Spiel and shtick. You got to get really Yiddishy. It helps to maybe ingest some dairy product before saying it's the spiel. It sounds a lot better that way. All right. And this spiel today, by the way, will be a little bit about Putin. Our first segment's about Putin. Here, have some Putin. As the world watches what Vladimir Putin will do next in eastern Ukraine, in Odessa, and all the areas where he claims that citizens claim a tie to Mother Russia, these encroachments are fueled by decisions made at home. As he works hard to sort of train the Russian media to deliver the message that he wants, a new law requires bloggers in Russia to register with the government. They also have to check their facts with the government. Russia has also passed laws banning profanity in any movie and any TV show or from the stage. Strobe Talbot is former Deputy Secretary of State under Bill Clinton. He's currently president of the Brookings Institution. Thanks for joining us on The Gist. Glad to be with you, Mike. So up until recently, the Russian government seemed a lot more concerned about what appeared in mass media, in uh, on television, television they could control. They didn't care about small newspapers or bloggers so much. Why do you think Putin is now cracking down on bloggers? Well, I think it's uh, it got to be seen, Mike, in the context of what's happening overall, and we'll get to the foreign policy part of it as well, of course. There has always been a link between aggression abroad, when Russia breaks bad, and repression at home, and we're seeing that now. Uh, that's partly because uh, the guy in the Kremlin, uh, in this case Putin, but there have been others in the past, uh, when they want to distract people from the difficulties they're having in modernizing Russia, they look for enemies. And they look for enemies abroad, and they look for enemies at home. And it's, of course, much easier to uh, drum up public support for very dubious policies like invading neighboring countries uh, if the guy in the Kremlin controls the media, because he can then make sure that uh, much, if not most, of the Russian population sees his version of the story. Do you think the policies would be popular if uh, the media were able to report on it more honestly or aggressively? Right. There's no question that Putin has gotten a big boost in his public approval because many, many Russians, uh, whatever their other political uh, preferences might be, have felt that uh, their country has come down in the world since the end of the Soviet Union, uh, that it's lost its superpower status and now it's regaining it. 
There's another new law that forbids denying the Holocaust, which seems enlightened, except, you know, given Russia's bad history of how it treated Jews, but it is tied to a broader ban on distortions of the Soviet Union's role in World War II. What's behind that? One thing is pretty clear. Uh, One of the themes in Russian propaganda with regard to Ukraine is that the interim government of Ukraine, that is to say the pro-Western forces that... uh, that protested throughout the winter and then ultimately drove uh, President Yanukovych out of the country are fascists. Uh, Putin uses that word over and over and over again. So I think part of uh, what you're just referring to, which has just come into the news very recently, uh, is that this is a way of bolstering uh, Russia's uh, claim to being, uh, once again, as it was in World War II, uh, a, uh, a champion fighter against the fascists. Now, even by the, by the way, uh, <laughs> there's a little bit of problem with the facts of history there, because, of course, Stalin and Hitler uh, made a pact together. Uh, so Stalin, as a communist, was perfectly happy to, uh, to uh, join forces with the world's number one fascist and Nazi until such time as Hitler invaded Russia, the Soviet Union. So uh, I think it, the, the other part here is that the, the watchdogs over the Russian media now have an excuse to just block anything that they don't feel fits right into their propaganda line. So as we, and as you try to help us understand this question of what's Putin up to, what do you think his long game is? Well, you know, Mike, I'm not sure he has a long game. Uh, There's a lot of talk and commentary to the effect that Vladimir Putin is a great strategist. I would say he's a a tactician and not a strategist, and he's not thinking down the road very uh, far. And in in fact, that's really the only way to explain uh, some of the things that he is doing, which seem to me to be uh, dangerous to the survival of Russia within its uh, its, its current borders. For example, he has wrapped himself in the in the flag or in the mantle of great Russian nationalism. Uh, It was on the claim of having the right and responsibility to go into another country, a neighboring country, in order to protect the ethnic Russians there uh, that uh, he has used as a rationale for everything he's doing in Ukraine. But a significant part of the Russian Federation's population is not Russian. So uh, people who are out in the Caucasus or in Central Asia or in the Far East and who are are not ethnically Russian are going to feel over time uh, alienated uh, from Moscow if the guy in charge in Moscow is proclaiming every day that his role in life is to protect ethnic Russians. So uh, parts of the Soviet Union where there is uh, a majority of non-Russian people could become vulnerable itself either to secessionism, separatism, the kind of thing that we're seeing in Ukraine now, uh, or uh, being gobbled up by neighboring countries. Strobe Talbot is a former deputy secretary of state, a Russia hand. Is that fair to say? Can I call you that? Guilty as charged. A Kremlinologist? Well, (laughs) now that the Kremlin is where the action is, you bet. All right. And he has a cool indie rock band named after him, and he's president of the Brookings Institution. Both of those are true, too, right? Yeah, I've, I haven't. I haven't. I've, I'm told there's that band, but they misspelled my last name apparently. Oh man, the <laughs> indignity! Thank you, Strobe Talbot. <laughs> Thank you, Mike. Bye.
Now I want to tell you about Slate Plus. This is our service for premium members. Uh, for 50 bucks a year, you get all this extra content. It's not a paywall. That's one of the things we always have to say, but it's true. It's not a paywall. It's just some extra stuff for people who love us and who love Slate. If you're a big fan of the gist, it's a way to support us specifically if you go to slate.com slash gist plus. The gist itself will be doing some plus content along the way very soon. Again, the URL, slate.com slash gist plus. Thanks. In the early days of America, or colonies that would become America, justice was often brutal and flat out unjust. The most infamous category of crime was for witchcraft, where women were persecuted and executed, often in bouts of mass hysteria. But another crime was the target of many trials and executions, too. Bestiality, sex with animals. There's always a portion of society that has, uh, uh, you know, some men who have sex with farm animals. Professor Duran Ben-Attar is the author of Taming Lust, Crimes Against Nature in the Early Republic. Some men, you know, do that. And these men uh, tend to very often to have other uh, unpleasant things about them. They tend to abuse animals, to abuse children. Taming Lust focuses on bestiality trials from the 1790s. This was a time of enlightenment, but also of slavery, the French Revolution. A lot was going on. But the book begins with some cases from centuries prior. When you have all these examples of bestiality in New England's Puritan colonies, there was this teenager, Thomas Granger, who was prosecuted for buggery with, quote, a mare, a cow, two goats, five sheep, two calves, and a turkey. I like the turkey, don't yeah, you? Yeah, <laughs> always the turkey. That's, like, that's the grace note. Yes. And uh, the herd of sheep were brought before him so he could identify those he defiled. Absolutely. And you can imagine the lineup. This one I had sex with, this one, that one's a dog I wouldn't come close to. And then you, know, you move on. You know, just imagine this lineup. You I know, have taste, uh, sir. I, I, that's right. I'm not, you know, oh I, I, I discriminate. Yes, yes. And that's not the only case. There's another one with... Uh, uh, I think there was a guy named George Spencer. Oh, George Spencer. Yeah, they said that um, he had sex with a pig and the pig gave birth to a human-looking piglet. No, actually, with George Spencer, it's even funnier yeah. because he is like a vagabond in, in the colony of New Haven, uh, a marginal fellow, and a piglet with a kind of a deformed eye is born. Yeah. And he has a deformed eye, so they accuse him. He sees that the, a person um, who was just recently convicted of, of, uh, of rape uh, got only whipped, so he confesses. Right. Um, but then he, when they send him to die, he uh, recounts his confession. They still take it, but they need a second witness. And the second witness is whom? The piglet. Because the piglet. the piglet, yes. The next year, when they get, and, and that's, that's too good to be true, the name, you know, the guy is actually Thomas Hogg, and I'm not inventing that name. A guy named Hogg right. denies it, it, fatherhood right. of a piglet. They bring the sow to his cell, uh, thinking the affection he has for the sow will sort of, you know, will make him confess. And they put the sow on his lap. And the sow, you know, surprisingly is not resting there. Um, she's kind of moves quite energetically. She wants to get out. And so they report that they saw that she was excited. Oh, um, and they estimate, they assume that. But of course, there was no second uh, witness in that case because he never confessed because he saw what happened to Spencer right. the year before. So in that case, you know, they, they can't convict him. So they whip him for something else and they get on. And then the following a couple of years later, another uh, deformed piglet is born and they are gathered all the men of the New Haven colony around bringing the, uh, the little uh, piglet, thinking that the natural affection that the father would feel towards his offspring would arouse somebody to come forward and confess that he is indeed the father of this deformed piglet. We have to think of a... They don't know anything about human nature or just nature. I, they, I, the distinction between species yeah. that we uh, 
take for granted. They did not share. Right. They thought they thought they honestly thought a woman gave birth to seventeen rabbits. Yes. Mary yeah. Tough in England, yeah. you know, and scientists, you know, confirmed that. Yeah. But by but by the 1790s, right. was this kind of backwards thinking still prevalent? Well, there's a whole infatuation with the culture of, um, you know, with, with kind of deformities. Mm-hmm. You know, museums and freak right. shows are, are rising. And only that, I mean, think about uh, what racist ideas about Africans are. You know, the belief, you know, even articulated by Thomas Jefferson is that uh, Africans had sex with apes in Africa. Um, that's why they're different. Think about the, the mule. What is the origin of the term mulatto? What, mm-hmm. Why do we call mulatto? Mulatto originates from mule. Mm. The notion is a mixture of two species. But even though this was the case, um, we all know that um, sex between uh, blacks and whites was very prevalent on, you know, in the South, you know, particularly under slavery where uh, black women were raped regularly. So what did they think when they were having sex with, with a, you know, with a slave woman? Is that they, uh, obviously they recognize her humanity on some level. On the other hand, the transgression seems to be uh, of the highest magnitude, transgression of the boundary between human being and animal. Consequently, the, as, as, as Freud said long ago, the greater the transgression, the greater the desire, the, you know, and the greater the prohibition, the, the greater the desire. So your book deals, mostly deals with these two specific trials, a couple of men in their 80s. And it was 100 years after anyone in America had been executed for the crime. And so without getting into the details, which are certainly laid out in the book, and each of them, you know, had their own conclusion in their own way, what was really going on here? Why were they prosecuting Two men in their 80s for a crime that kind of had become a joke, like it is today. So what what going on? What happened with these men? Um, what we have here is a, is a is a mixture of something. We have the change in the nature of understanding of human sexuality, to whereas the uh, male libido becomes the transgressive danger. Whereas you know previously we thought of Eve the seductress, a woman as the kind of the, as the sexual tem- you know temptation. The second thing that we have here we have tremendous economic upheaval by the the prosperity of the wars of the French Revolution, you know the emergence of of, of a culture of consumption of some sort, and what elites are seeing as decline in the observation of sort of the old ways. And these things, by the way, are happening in the interior of New England. And these elite people are aware of what's going on in the cities, and it's somewhat like a, a, it's like a Puritan flashback of some yeah. sort. It, there, there are a lot of reactionary influences. They're scared of the Jacobins. They're scared of Thomas Jefferson. Right. And so... They latch on to this, the, the old ways. Right. They latch yeah. on to the old ways. Yeah. It's a, it's a pretty, sex is one of those things that when society is anxious about something, it manifests itself in some sexual scandal. It's something, this swinging from promiscuity to puritanism has been a feature of our society. Uh, think of the last 30 years, the sex scandals. I mean, why do they even emerge? I mean, who cares if a man is, in, is not faithful to his wife? Suddenly it becomes mm-hmm. the most important news item. Yeah. And then it dies out. And everybody goes back to cheating on their spouses. The book is Taming Lust, Crimes Against Nature in the Early Republic. And I did want to ask you about this. So I'm looking at the book. I I just said the name and the subtitle. There's no mention of what crime we're talking about. Although the picture on the book is a man being struck by lightning while stroking a dog. Was the publisher a little hesitant to take it on? Uh, This, yes. This is, you know, this is the kind of book you do after you're tenured. (laughs) Thank you very much. (laughs) Thank you. Bye-bye. Chicks and ducks and geese better scurry When I take you out in the Surrey When I take you out in the Surrey With the fringe on top And now we end our show, as we do all shows, with the spiel, my rant, my attempt at humor, perhaps my attempt to educate, to illuminate, 
even to intimidate. I'm not above that. You know, some people just have that quality of leaving every room they visit better off for them having been there. You know who's the opposite of that? Vladimir Putin. Putin is a major exporter of tumult. Berlusconi pitches woo, Putin pitches woe. But Putin seems not only a cause of misery, the guy seems attracted to misery also. Vlad has already absorbed Crimea, a couple of parts of Georgia, South Ossetia, and Abkhazia went Russian in 2008. Eastern Ukraine is now in play to become a AAA affiliate of the big league club in Moscow. And the latest, what Nick Kristof of the Times calls the next Ukraine is Moldova. Moldova. Now here's the thing about this collection of countries from the remaindered bin of geopolitics. They are miserable miserable places. According to the Legatum Institute, their rankings of the happiest countries, these nation states are the sad men of Europe. In terms of happiness, there are 43 countries in Europe. Ukraine is a glum 34. Georgia, a doleful 39. And Moldova, Moldova, a forlorn 41. Russia is 33 out of the 34 European countries, by the way, which just shows that misery loves company, or at least companies and battalions of Russian army irregulars. Moldova, Moldova, is ranked by Ruth Wienhoven, who runs the World Database of Human Happiness, as one of the least happy places on Earth. But move over, Moldova, because the Transnistria region is even less happy than that. Transnistria is the part of Moldova, Moldova, that is already within Russia's sphere of influence. Transnistria has no airport, little entertainment, and is under the control of criminal gangs. It's like a skinnier, more landlocked version of Staten Island. Only much, much worse. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is Russia's prize. Transnistria, Crimea, Ossetia, these regions and the countries they're in aren't just sad places, they're poor places. Putin is taking on an enormous economic burden propping them up. So maybe we in the West should be publicly decrying Russian expansionism, but privately regarding Putin as if he were the GM of a rival basketball team who is busy signing all these washed up players, or like the CEO of a rival conglomerate who is busily acquiring a portfolio of failed companies. Either way, let us pause to remember the stirring words of the Moldovan national anthem. Our language is a sacred language. Words of homilies of old wept and sung perpetually in the homesteads of our folk. A treasure might one day spring from the deepest of the sand, chain of precious stones that scattered all over our ancient land. Yeah, maybe one day you'll get that treasure. But now Russia has what it considers to be the prize, which will soon be the millstones around the neck of the Russian economy. And that is it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi produces and produces and produces. Andy Bowers is her benevolent overlord who ripples and carries Morningstar's flicker. Actually, that's another line from the Moldovan National Anthem. You can subscribe on iTunes and give us a review. There are already a few reviews up. They are kind. You can search for Slate Gist in your favorite podcast app on Android, an iOS device, on good old Stitcher. The Slate Daily podcast feed also has the gist in it. And let me now tell you about the gist email option. Here's what you do. You go to our show page, which is slate.com slash the gist, and click on my picture, aim right for the forehead, and this will take you to today's show. And there you'll find a circular button to sign up for a daily email. 
Here's what this gives you. It tells you as soon as the show is available that day. But it's also this special magical email because if you click on the text of the email, you can actually play the show right from the email. It is revolutionary in its backwardness. You could also send email to us without three clicks or aiming from my forehead. We're at thegist.slate.com. Please stop by. Tell us what you think. And remember, don't invade any mountainous regions in the lesser caucuses. And thanks for listening.